Chapter Eighteen of Sylvia's Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Mackenzie. Sylvia's Lovers by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter Eighteen. Eddie in Love's Current. The next morning shone bright and clear, if ever a March morning did. The beguiling month was coming in like a lamb, with whatever storms it might go raging out it was long since philip had tasted the freshness of the early air on the shore or in the country as his employment at the shop detained him in monkshaven till the evening and as he turned down the quays or staiths on the north side of the river towards the shore and met the fresh sea breeze blowing right in his face it was impossible not to feel bright and elastic with his knapsack slung over his shoulder he was prepared for a good stretch towards hartlepool whence a coach would take him to newcastle before night for seven or eight miles the level sands were as short and far more agreeable a road than the up and down landways philip walked on pretty briskly unconsciously enjoying the sunny landscape before him the crisp curling waves rushing almost up to his feet on his right hand and then swishing back over the fine small pebbles into the great swelling sea to his left were the cliffs rising one behind another having deep gullies here and there between with long green slopes upward from the land and then sudden falls of brown and red soil or rock deepening to a yet greater richness of colour at their base towards the blue ocean before him the loud monotonous murmur of the advancing and receding waters lulled him into dreaminess the sunny look of everything tinged his daydreams with hope so he trudged merrily over the first mile or so not an obstacle to his measured pace on the hard level pavement not a creature to be seen since he had left the little gathering of bare-legged urchins dabbling in the sepals near monkshaven the cares of land were shut out by the glorious barrier of rocks before him there were some great masses that had been detached by the action of the weather and lay half embedded in the sand draperied over by the heavy pendant olive-green seaweed the waves were nearer at this point the advancing sea came up with a mighty distant length of roar here and there the smooth swell was lashed by the fret against unseen rocks into white breakers but otherwise the waves came up from the german ocean upon that english shore with a long steady roll that might have taken its first impetus far away in the haunt of the sea serpent on the coast of norway over the foam the air was soft as may right overhead the sky was blue but it deadened into grey near the sea-lines flocks of seagulls hovered about the edge of the waves slowly rising and turning their white underplumage to glimmer in the sunlight as philip approached the whole scene was so peaceful so soothing that it dispelled the cares and fears too well founded in fact which had weighed down on his heart during the dark hours of the past night there was Haytersbank Gully, opening down its green entrance among the warm brown bases of the cliffs. Below, in the sheltered brushwood, among the last year's withered leaves, some primroses might be found. He half thought of gathering Sylvia a posy of them, and rushing up to the farm to make a little farewell peace-offering. But, on looking at his watch, he put all thoughts of such an action out of his head. It was above an hour later than he had supposed, and he must make all haste on to Hartlepool just as he was approaching this gully a man came dashing down and ran out some way upon the sand with the very force of his descent 
Then he turned to the left and took the direction of Hartlepool a hundred yards or so in advance of Philip. He never stayed to look round him, but went swiftly and steadily on his way. By the peculiar lurch in his walk, by everything, Philip knew it was the specksioneer, Kinraid. Now, the road up Haytersbank Gully led to the farm, and nowhere else. Still, anyone wishing to descend to the shore might do so by first going up to the Robson's house and skirting the walls till they came to the little slender path down to the shore. But by the farm, by the very house door, they must of necessity pass. Philip slackened his pace, keeping under the shadow of the rock. By and by, Kinraid, walking on the sunlight open sands, turned round and looked long and earnestly towards Hadersbank Gully. Hepburn paused when he paused, but as intently as he looked at some object above, so intently did Hepburn look at him. No need to ascertain by sight towards whom his looks, his thoughts were directed. He took off his hat and waved it, touching one part of it as if with particular meaning. When he turned away at last, Hepburn heaved a heavy sigh, and crept yet more into the cold, dank shadow of the cliffs. Each step was now a heavy task, his sad heart tired and weary. After a while he climbed up a few feet, so as to mingle his form yet more completely with the stones and rocks around, stumbling over the uneven and often jagged points, slipping on the seaweed, plunging into little pools of water left by the ebbing tide in some natural basins. He kept yet his eyes fixed, as if in fascination, on Kinraid, and made his way almost alongside of him. But the last hour had pinched Hepburn's features into something of the one haggardness they would wear when he should first be lying still for ever. And now the two men were drawing near a creek, about eight miles from Monkshaven. The creek was formed by a beck, or small stream, that came flowing down from the moors and took its way to the sea between the widening rocks. The melting of the snows and running of the flooded water springs above made this beck in the early springtime both deep and wide. Hepburn knew that here they both must take a path leading inland to a narrow footbridge about a quarter of a mile up the stream. Indeed, from this point, owing to the jutting out of the rocks, the land path was the shortest, and this way lay by the waterside at an angle right below the cliff to which Hepburn's steps were leading him he knew that on this long level field-path he might easily be seen by any one following nay if he followed any one at a short distance for it was full of turnings and he resolved late as he was to sit down for a while till kinraid was far enough in advance for him to escape being seen he came up to the last rock behind which he could be concealed seven or eight feet above the stream he stood and looked cautiously for the specksioneer up by the rushing stream he looked, then right below. It is God's providence, he murmured. It is God's providence. He crouched down where he had been standing and covered his face with his hands. He tried to deafen as well as to blind himself, that he might neither hear nor see anything of the coming event of which he, an inhabitant of Monkshaven at that day, well understood the betokening signs. Kinraid had taken the larger angle of the sands, before turning up towards the bridge. He came along now, nearing the rocks. By this time he was sufficiently buoyant to whistle to himself. It steeled Philip's heart to what was coming, to hear his rival whistling, "'Wheel may the keel row,' so soon after parting with Sylvia. 
the instant Kinraid turned the corner of the cliff, the ambush was upon him. Four man-of-war's men sprang on him and strove to pinion him. "'In the king's name!' cried they with rough triumphant jeers. Their boat was moored not a dozen yards above. They were sent by the tender of a frigate lying off Hartlepool for fresh water. The tender was at anchor just beyond the jutting rocks in face. They knew that fishermen were in the habit of going to and from their nets by the side of the creek. But such a prize as this, active, strong, and evidently superior sailor, was what they had not hoped for, and their endeavours to secure him were in proportion to the value of the prize. Although taken by surprise and attacked by so many, Kinraid did not lose his wits. He wrenched himself free, crying out loud, Avast, I'm a protected whaler. I claim my protection. Of my papers to show, I'm bonded specksioneer to the Urania whaler, Donkin Captain, North Shields Port. As a protected whaler, the press gang had, by the seventeenth section of Act twenty six, George the third, no legal right to seize him, unless he had failed to return to his ship by the tenth of March, following the date of his bond. But of what use were the papers he hastily dragged out of his breast? Of what use were laws in those days of slow intercourse with such as were powerful enough to protect, and in the same time of popular panic against a French invasion? "'Damn your protection!' cried the leader of the press-gang. "'Come and serve his majesty! That's better than catching whales!' "'Is it, though?' said the specksioneer with a motion of his hand, which the swift-eyed sailor opposed to him saw and interpreted rightly. "'Thou wilt, wilt thou? Close with him, Jack, and wear the cutlass!' In a minute his cutlass was forced from him, and it became a hand-to-hand -hand struggle of which, from the difference in numbers, it was not difficult to foretell the result. Yet Kinraid made desperate efforts to free himself. He wasted no breath in words, but fought, as the men said, like a very devil. Hepburn heard loud pants of breath, great thuds, the dull struggle of limbs on the sand, the growling curses of those who thought to have managed their affair more easily, the sudden cry of some one wounded, not Kinraid, he knew. Kinraid would have borne any pain in silence at such a moment. Another wrestling, swearing, infuriated strife, and then a strange silence. Hepburn sickened at the heart. Was then his rival dead? Had he left this bright world? Lost his life, his love? For an instant Hepburn felt guilty of his death. He said to himself he had never wished him dead— and yet in the struggle he had kept aloof, and now it might be too late for ever. Philip could not bear the suspense. He looked stealthily round the corner of the rock behind which he had been hidden, and saw that they had overpowered Kinraid, and, too exhausted to speak, were binding him hand and foot to carry him to their boat. Kinraid lay as still as any hedgehog. He rolled when they pushed him, he suffered himself to be dragged without any resistance, any motion. The strong colour brought into his face while fighting was gone now. His countenance was livid pale. His lips were tightly held together, as if it cost him more effort to be passive, wooden, and stiff in their hands than it had done to fight and struggle with all his might. His eyes seemed the only part about him that showed cognizance of what was going on. They were watchful, vivid, fierce, as those of a wild cat brought to bay seeking in its desperate quickened brain for some mode of escape not yet visible, and in all probability never to become visible to the hopeless creature in its supreme agony. 
without a motion of his head he was perceiving and taking in everything while he lay bound at the bottom of the boat a sailor sat by his side who had been hurt by a blow from him the man held his head in his hand moaning but every now and then he revenged himself by a kick at the prostrate specksioneer till even his comrades stopped their cursing and swearing at the prisoner for the trouble he had given them to cry shame on their comrade but kinraid never spoke nor shrank from the outstretched foot one of his captors with the successful insolence of victory ventured to jeer him on the supposed reason for his vehement and hopeless resistance he might have said yet more insolent things the kicks might have hit harder kinraid did not hear or heed his soul was beating itself against the bars of inflexible circumstance reviewing in one terrible instant of time what had been what might have been what was yet while these thoughts thus stabbed him he was still mechanically looking out for chances he moved his head a little so as to turn towards Hatersbank, where sylvia must be quickly if sadly going about her simple daily work and then his quick eye caught hepburn's face blanched with excitement rather than fear watching eagerly from behind the rock where he had sat breathless during the affray and the impressment of his rival come here lad shouted the specksioneer as soon as he saw philip heaving and writhing his body the while with so much vigour that the sailors started away from the work they were engaged in about the boat and held him down once more as if afraid he should break the strong rope that held him like withes of green flax but the bound man had no such notion in his head his mighty wish was to call hepburn near that he might send some message by him to sylvia come here hepburn he cried again falling back this time so weak and exhausted that the man-of-war's men became sympathetic come down peeping tom and don't be feared they called out i'm not afeard said philip i'm no sailor for you to impress me nor have you any right to take that fellow is a greenland specksioneer under protection as i know and can testify you and you'll testify go hang make haste man and hear what this gemman as was in a dirty blubbery whale-ship and is now in his majesty's service has got to say i dare say jack went on the speaker is some message to his sweetheart asking her to come for to serve on board ship along with thee like billy taylor's young woman philip was coming towards them slowly not from want of activity but because he was undecided what he should be called upon to do or to say by the man whom he hated and dreaded yet whom just now he could not help admiring kinraid groaned with impatience at seeing one free to move with quick decision so slow and dilatory come on then cried the sailors or we'll take you two on board and run you up and down mainmast a few times nothing like life aboard ship for quickening a landlubber you better take him and leave me said kid raid grimly i've been taught my lesson and seemingly he has his yet to learn his majesty into schoolmaster to need scholars but a jolly good captain to need men replied the leader of the gang eyeing philip nevertheless eyeing philip nevertheless and questioning within himself how far with only two other available men they durst venture on his capture as well as the specksioneers it might be done he thought even though there was this powerful captain aboard and the boat to manage too but running his eye over philip's figure he decided that the tall stooping fellow was never cut out for a sailor and that he should get small thanks if he captured him to pay him for the possible risk of losing the other or else 
the mere fact of being a landsman was of as little consequence to the press-gang as the protecting papers which Kinraid had vainly showed. "'Yon fellow wouldn't have been worth his grog this many a day, and be damned to you,' said he, catching Hepburn by the shoulder and giving him a push. Philip stumbled over something in this, his forced run. He looked down. His foot had caught in Kinraid's hat, which had dropped off in the previous struggle. In the band that went round the low crown, a ribbon was knotted, a piece of that same ribbon which Philip had chosen out, with such tender hope, to give to Sylvia for the Corney's party on New Year's Eve. He knew every delicate thread that made up the Briarose pattern, and a spasm of hatred towards Kinraid contracted his heart. He had been almost relenting into pity for the man captured before his eyes. Now he abhorred him. Kinraid did not speak for a minute or two. The sailors, who had begun to take him into favour, were all agog with curiosity to hear the message to his sweetheart, which they believed he was going to send. Hepburn's perceptions, quickened with his vehement agitation of soul, were aware of this feeling of theirs, and it increased his rage against Kinraid, who had exposed the idea of Sylvia to be the subject of ribald whispers. But the specksioneer cared little what others said or thought about the maiden, whom he yet saw before his closed eyelids as she stood watching him from the Hater's Bank gully, waving her hands, her handkerchief, all in one passionate farewell. "'What do you want with me?' asked Hepburn at last in a gloomy tone. If he could have helped it, he would have kept silence till Kinraid spoke first, but he could no longer endure the sailors' nudges and winks and jests among themselves. "'Tell Sylvia,' said Kinraid. "'There's a smart name for his sweetheart,' exclaimed one of the men, but Kinraid went straight on. "'What you've seen? I've been pressed by this cursed gang.' "'Civil words, messmate, if you please. Sylvia can't abide cursing and swearing, I'm sure.' "'Where gentlemen serving his majesty on board the Alcestis, "'and this proper young fellow shall be helped on to more honour and glory "'than he'd ever get bobbing for whales. "'Tell Sylvia this with my love. "'Jack Carter's love, if she's anxious about my name.' "'One of the sailors laughed at this rude humour. "'Another bade Carter hold his stupid tongue. "'Philip hated him in his heart. "'Kinraid hardly heard him. "'He was growing faint with the heavy blows he had received, "'the stunning fall he had met with and the reaction from his dogged self-control at first. Philip did not speak nor move. "'Tell her,' continued Kinraid, rousing himself for another effort, "'what you've seen. Tell her I'll come back to her. Bid her not forget the great oath we took together this morning. She's as much my wife as if we'd gone to church. I'll come back and marry her afore long.' Philip said something inarticulately. "'Hurrah!' cried Carter. "'And I'll be best ma'am.' "'Tell her, too, that I'll have an eye on her sweetheart "'and keep him from running after other girls.' "'You'll have your hands full, then,' muttered Philip, "'his passion boiling over at the thought "'of having been chosen out from among all men "'to convey such a message as can raids to Sylvia. "'Make an end of your damned yarns and be off,' "'said the man who had been hurt by Kinraid, "'who had sat apart and silent till now. "'Philip turned away. "'Kinraid raised himself and cried after him. "'Hepburn! Hepburn! Tell her!' What he added Philip could not hear, for the words were lost before they reached him in the outward noise of the regular splash of the oars and the rush of the wind down the gully, with which mingled the closer sound that filled his ears of his own hurrying blood surging up into his brain. He was conscious that he had said something in reply to Kinraid's adjuration that he would deliver his message to Sylvia, at the very time when Carter had stung him into fresh anger 
by the allusion to the possibility of the specksioneers running after other girls, for, for an instant, Hepburn had been touched by the contrast of circumstances. Kinraid an hour or two ago, Kinraid a banished man, for in those days an impressed sailor might linger out years on some foreign station, far from those he loved, who all this time remained ignorant of his cruel fate. But Hepburn began to wonder what he himself had said, how much of a promise he had made to deliver those last passionate words of Kinraid's. He could not recollect how much, how little he had said. He knew he had spoken hoarsely and low, almost at the same time as Carter had uttered his loud joke, but he doubted if Kinraid had caught his words. And then the dread inner creature who lurks in each of our hearts arose and said, It is as well. A promise given is a fetter to the giver, but a promise is not given when it has not been received. At a sudden impulse he turned again towards the shore when he had crossed the bridge, and almost ran towards the verge of the land. Then he threw himself down on the soft fine turf that grew on the margin of the cliffs overhanging the sea, and commanding an extent of view towards the north. His face, supported by his hands, he looked down upon the blue rippling ocean, flashing here and there into the sunlight in long glittering lines. The boat was still in the distance, making her swift, silent way with long regular bounds to the tender that lay in the offing. Hepburn felt insecure, as in a nightmare dream, so long as the boat did not reach her immediate destination. His contracted eyes could see four minute figures rowing with ceaseless motion and a fifth sate at the helm. But he knew there was a sixth, unseen, lying bound and helpless at the bottom of the boat, and his fancy kept expecting this man to start up and break his bonds and overcome all the others and return to the shore free and triumphant. It was by no fault of Hepburn's that the boat sped well away, that she was now alongside the tender dancing on the waves, now emptied of her crew, now hoisted up to her place. No fault of his. And yet it took him some time before he could reason himself into the belief that his mad, feverish wishes not an hour before, his wild prayer to be rid of his rival, as he himself had scrambled onward over the rocks alongside of Kinraid's path on the sands, had not compelled the event. Anyhow, thought he as he rose up, the prayer is granted, God be thanked. Once more he looked out towards the ship. She had spread her beautiful great sails, and was standing out to sea in the glittering path of the descending sun. He saw that he had been delayed on his road and had lingered long. He shook his stiffened limbs, shouldered his knapsack, and prepared to walk on to Hartlepool as swiftly as he could. End of chapter 18